Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be Amazon. Of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we are going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we're going to be providing in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. And today, we got a lot for you. First off, we're going to take a look at Amazon. It's Prime Day coming up Monday, Tuesday. It's going to be how impactful that is to their actual business, but also the regulatory issues. The FTC is all up in Amazon, so where are the risk points? And plus, we're going to look at the downgrade that rocked the financial community. BASF. Uh, they do everything over in Germany and they downgraded their profit forecast for 2019. Totally surprising Wall Street. But first, we're going to begin with one of the biggest media conferences of the year. The Allen and Company Conference wrapped up earlier this week in Sun Valley, Idaho. And my co-host, Paul Sweeney, working long, hard hours at all those media parties, was in attendance. Paul? Thanks, Alex. This is the big conference for technology, media, and telecom companies. They gather here every year to talk about the future of the business. How is technology impacting their businesses? What do they need to do to really grow their businesses going forward? In fact, we sat down with Sarah Fryer, the CEO of Nextdoor.com. Take a listen. So Nextdoor, we are all about local. Um, We're founded on trust, so it is your neighbors. We have verified that those are the people living around you. Um, From there, we want to be able to do three things. We want to keep you informed about what's going on in your neighborhood. We want to help you get get, get connected. Remember, that's most people don't know their neighbors, so it's a huge problem that we're trying to solve. And the third is help you get things done. Everything from help me find a babysitter, help me find the best plumber, help me find a great event to go to this weekend. Um, We're there to make sure that anything you want to do in a hyper-local fashion gets done on Nextdoor. Okay, how big is Nextdoor in terms of members or cities or neighborhoods? Sure, so today we're about 240... 240,000 neighborhoods across 10 countries. So the great thing I see with Nextdoor is there's not a community in the world that doesn't want to create stronger, safer communities. So today we are in the U.S., but we also resonate very well in countries like the U.K., the Netherlands, Australia, um, other European countries. 
Um, but frankly, the world's our oyster, right? <laughs> there, you can go anywhere. North Korea, I mean, you name it, there still will be a mom maybe looking to find other moms. You might find an, a senior that's lonely that wants to meet other seniors. Everybody's tap or faucet breaks down at some point <laughs> right. in life. They need the plumber. So we view it as a really open-ended opportunity. So on the business side, uh, your company recently had a, a capital raise of about $123 million. A nice valuation, $2.1 billion. Talk yeah. to us about that raise and kind of what the use of proceeds are for. Absolutely. So we were delighted with that fundraise. Um, it was one of the first things I wanted to do coming in as a new CEO is always just to make sure that you have the right balance sheet to, to do everything else that you want to get done. Um, the round itself, as you noted, $2.1 billion, $123 million raised. A very nice mixture of new investors coming in. So Riverwoods Capital led it. Um, um, but also current investors, so folks like Benchmark Capital and Kleiner Perkins. Um, in terms of what we want to do with it, really three things. Um, the first is to continue to drive growth. So we continue to have global aspirations. So this helps us go country by country. Um, second area is engagement. So once we have neighbors on the platform, how do we keep creating more utility? The way you do that is you hire more engineers. They build more <laughs> great products, and they cost a lot of money to right. go out and hire. Um, and the third area that we are digging into is this power of local business. So also one of my passions in life, clearly coming from where I was before, is what can you do to help local businesses thrive? And we know that when they thrive, communities thrive. And so we're putting a big push into how do we bring local small businesses onto the platform, too. One of the big issues I think that's getting probably more play over the last several years, particularly for social media platforms, has been uh, privacy. Yeah. Um, so for Nextdoor, I know there's been some issues about you know the, the what information is shared between neighbors is there some profiling going on in neighborhoods how do you deal with the content that goes on your platform? Sure. So it's a great question. And I think it is absolutely something we as platforms have to make sure we're being very proactive about. Um, I started by saying we're founded on trust. So we actually do a lot to verify that you live in that house, in that neighborhood. I would call it almost a very friction-full onboarding okay. process. <laughs> I'm very on Silicon Valley. Um, because of that, it's not a bot. It's not a made-up person. It truly is your neighbor. Um, second thing that we do is that once you're on the platform, it is your name and your address that's seen. So it never makes everyone their best selves. Um, clearly, when people are passionate about right. particular topics, that uh, can get contentious sometimes. But by having your name there, we think it makes you your better self. And then I think the third piece where you were going with things like uh, racial profiling, we use a lot of design, and we've worked with a lot of act academics over time to really help, as people make a post, help them really get into you know the front part of their brain where right. they're truly thinking. And we spend a lot of time talking about kindness. That was Sarah Fryer, CEO of Nextdoor.com. Nextdoor is really a social media network that is trying to solve the last mile of local internet advertising, really focusing on hyper-local content uh, and hyper-local advertisers. And that's a part of the business the internet has never really solved. When you think about advertising on Facebook and Google, that is big national advertisers. And local advertisers really haven't had a good play uh, in the past. Sarah Fryer and Nextdoor are trying to fix that strategy. Also here at Sun Valley, lots of other media tech telecom companies coming together trying to figure out how the convergence between tech, telecom, and media will play out over the next five years. Very strategic here. Lots of meetings, lots of side meetings, lots of excitement.
Paul, thanks so much. Miss you here in the studio. See you next week. I want to shine the spotlight here on Amazon. Monday and Tuesday will become Prime Day. I'm going to be sunning on the beach in Turks and Caicos, so I won't be buying stuff, but I'll think about all you guys trying to get online. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Intelligence Consumer Retail Analyst, Asima Shaw. Okay, Prime Day. What is it? What's the point? It's really just a special day to drive traffic to a site, really. That's what they're trying to do by having these deals. And it's it was originally a benefit just to the Prime members. Look at all these great deals you have. And now it's become an event where you can get, you know, maybe Black Friday-ish type of deals on a multitude of products. And there's different ways that the deals work. Some of them are priced at a discount for the day. Some of them have a time specificity. So it really is to create that urgency. And it became such a huge driver of sales for Amazon and continues to be that it sparked a lot of competition um, from other retailers to do something similar. I was going to say, like, how successful has it been for Amazon? Like, how does Amazon measure it? Because they don't necessarily just want you coming in and buying stuff one day, right? Like, the whole point is to, like, hook you in forever. Right. And so what they had done in the past, you could get, like, a short-term membership. But for the most part, given the size of their membership for Prime and how sticky it is, I don't even – I mean, maybe they get some more incremental members, but I think it's just the same members are spending more and more. Last year, it's estimated that they – had sales of about four billion on mm-hmm. this day, mm-hmm. um, and this year it could reach even five billion. So it's a huge sales windfall for them. And I think it's because it's done so well. You saw companies do something similar. Um, Wayfair did Wayday, which is similar. You mm-hmm. know, again, deals on their website. I know that Target and eBay also have things scheduled for around Prime Day. Um, so there's all these ways of sort of creating urgency for the consumer. Is it good? It certainly is helpful to someone like Amazon sales, and it may boost sales at Target and the other players who are doing this. Maybe they'll lose less sales. But at the end of the day, when I look at it, if you have such big discounts and people know that these quote-unquote holidays are coming, I think it's just dilutive to the brand and Mm -hmm. the ability to return to full-price selling. Mm -hmm. So longer term, I don't view it as good for the retailers themselves, but it's certainly great for the consumer who knows that, you know, they're playing retailers against each other for the most part, right? So also what I notice is that um, on Prime Day this year, workers are going to strike at Amazon? Yes. Yeah, so some workers in the Minnesota warehouse uh, have argued that conditions are very bad. There are blackout periods when they can take their vacation day, like during holiday or during Prime Day, and that these conditions aren't fair. So they are planning a six-hour walkout. I think this factory or this warehouse had had a walkout previously in March mm-hmm. for about three hours. Um, in the grand scheme of Amazon's business, I don't view it as something that's going to you know, hurt their sales on Prime Day. But I think, you know, it just brings about more attention to with mm-hmm. the way people look at Amazon and how they treat their workers. So, okay, well, but let's, let's piggyback off of that because it struck my eye because it's like another black mark on the by behemoth that's Amazon, right? It's going to yes. give nice fodder to um, uh, Congress and D.C. and all yes. of that. But the workers there, technically, they get paid more, right? Don't they get paid In like theory, 15 bucks an yeah, hour? Yeah, they do get paid more, but I think that when they raised the wages, they took away some of the other benefits uh, that they might have got. So net-net, I'm not sure if they're better off. However, it is a very large company, and you know, maybe I'm not sure exactly how their environment is where they're working, but... Uh, it is a big company. It does give, you know, some ammo for Congress and whatnot. But from a consumer perspective, while I think the bulk of America might be like, oh, that's not fair for the mm-hmm, workers, mm-hmm. I think the other half of their brain will be like, these are amazing deals and I'm a prime member and I'm oh, going to yeah. do it. So I can't imagine someone I feel like, like the left hand Amazon. doesn't talk to the right hand. Like you feel sympathy, but it doesn't change your habits. And so for that reason, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a huge 
pain point for Amazon. What I also find interesting about Amazon is, um, say, using Kohl's, for example. Yes. So now Kohl's is going, you can get Amazon stuff delivered, but you can mm-hmm. also return it. Can yeah. you walk me through what that is? Like, how does that help Kohl's? Because to me, all I see is a lot of money they have to spend now shipping out your stuff and storing your stuff. <laughs> right. So they're actually also doing this uh, with Rite Aid, and they have lockers in other locations. So what with Kohl's, what they're doing is allowing in all Kohl's stores, you can buy anything on Amazon return it and you just show them the barcode uh, that you get from Amazon and they'll pack it and ship it back to Amazon. Wait, they pack it? They pack it and ship it back. Game changer. It is. And so, you know, when you first look at it, you're like, what do they get out of it? And I think the way they view it, it's really about driving traffic, particularly traffic with younger consumers with the hopes Mm -hmm. that you're going to have all this stuff to buy. You're going to buy it. Now you're going to return it. And you're going to come in and maybe on your way out, you'll buy something from Kohl's and they might attract a different customer. But it's, you know, it does cost costing them, I think, 50 bips in SG&A uh, mm-hmm. this year. So there is a cost associated, but I think net net the benefit is, you know, to get this traffic. And for Amazon, return logistics is a huge pain point across e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And this is some way, to, you know, to sort of alleviate that pain. Um, did, did Kohl's have something like this before with Amazon? They did a test um, for 18 months, and they won't go into the details of the economics, but I believe that the way that the traffic increased was what, you know, spurred them to continue. And they won't tell you how much of a sales boost they got, but presumably they got some sort of a sales boost. And so they're going to, you know, expand this out. It's sort of an interesting concept. They're partnering with what you could argue is their biggest competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'd be curious to see, like, if this is an exclusive arrangement, if Amazon does this with other retailers, mm-hmm. does it dilute the value to Kohl's? Because now I can go to ex-retailer and do it. So um, I think for now, you know, hopefully we'll see if there's a traffic boost and sales boost as we get into uh, 2020. But certainly um, for their perspective, it's just all about traffic. Well, yeah, I was going to ask about um, other retailers kind of doing the same thing or, or how exclusive is that, but we don't have any read on that? Not, I mean, there are lockers in other places. They signed a deal yeah. with Rite Aid. I think you can return some stuff there as well. There's a lot of places that they're already are at. So the question is like how much of a boost it is. But you could also argue that the department stores and this middle market has been really pressured. So maybe this incremental boost is still, you know, a windfall for them given where they've been pushed to. So if you wrap it all together and we drill down into Amazon in terms of like earnings and margins. So where where is Amazon in terms of their margins? Um, I would imagine they're at low single digits. Retail, you know, they're allowed to be sort of irrational in the way that they perform. They're allowed to get into new industries, particularly in retail. They're allowed to sort of take the loss and mm-hmm, get the market mm-hmm. share. Um, but I believe like the biggest uh, bulk of their profitability is coming from their AWS. For their which yes. is the cloud service. Yes, not the retail side. It's just that this is so big, you know, people think of it. All right, Seema, super appreciate it. Seema Shah, Bloomberg Intelligence Consumer Retail Analyst. Something we like to do is take one company and take two different angles. And we just talked about Amazon as a company and Prime Day. So now I want to take a look at the regulatory issues surrounding the company. And for that, I'm pleased to welcome Bloomberg Senior Antitrust Litigation Analyst, uh, Jen Rhee. It's also like I love talking to Jen, so anytime I can get an excuse (laughs) to get her on the show, that's a plus. Um, Okay, so there's a lot of drama with big Mm -hmm. tech in D.C. What is it specifically with Amazon that's the problem? 
Well, we know the FTC may be investigating Amazon, right? That we understand that the Department of Justice and FTC sort of broke, uh, divided up the big tech companies. And we do understand from some reporting that the FTC has been out asking third parties and rivals about Amazon and some of Amazon's practices. And that gives you a good clue as to some of the conduct they might be thinking about as possibly violating the antitrust laws. So one area that we understand they may be looking at is Amazon's fulfillment services. Hmm. Uh, the fulfillment services for third-party sellers, Amazon will handle everything, the customer service, uh, packaging up the product, sending out the product, even the returns for a fee. And we understand that Amazon charges more to that third-party seller if the seller sells, let's say, through Etsy or some competing website rather than selling the product through oh, Amazon. I did not know that. Right, because Amazon will also handle that. Even if it's purchased through Etsy, they'll still handle all these fulfillment services um, if, if this third party buys it. So that's one thing that we understand the FTC could be looking at, and it could turn out that that does disadvantage online rivals to Amazon, right? So that that could be something that possibly crosses the line into, you know, monopolistic, illegal monopolistic conduct. You know, another area could be what the EU has been investigating already, um, and, and I think intends to have some initial thoughts on by the end of this year, is whether or not there could be some use of rivals' data. So Amazon um, operates a platform, but also competes against sellers on that platform by selling the same product, has access mm-hmm. to that rivals' data, and is Amazon using that data or even competitively sensitive information of that rival in some way that advantages Amazon and disadvantages that rival. So these are the kind of things that we think the FTC could be looking at. So for the last one, meaning that like if I buy a certain face cream all the time from Amazon and then they come up with a face cream that's similar, they'll start putting that up front when I search for it again or something? Is that like the idea they learn from me? Exactly. They learn from you. They understand what the buying habits are. They understand the best advertising, let's say, to target the right consumer. They can price. They can look mm-hmm. at the pricing and they can, and they can price just below what the, where the rival might be pricing. You know, there are any number of tactics I think the FTC could be looking into to see what those tactics are, what the reason for the tactics may be, and, and how those tactics may impact rivals. Let's say the FTC goes to Amazon and say, hey, look, we don't like these things. What does mm-hmm. Amazon say back to them? Well, Amazon, first of all, for a conduct to be monopolistic, illegally monopolistic, because monopolistic conduct by itself isn't necessarily illegal. An entity that has a lawful monopoly can charge monopoly prices, whatever the market can mm-hmm. bear. But let's say... Like drug pricing. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right, especially where there's a brand that has a patent. They can price wherever they want to price as much as we might not like that. Um, but in this case, if the FTC is looking at Amazon's conduct, the first thing is Amazon will have the right to say what the conduct does, why they engage in that conduct, what the pro-competitive legitimate business reason for that conduct is. Because in this area of antitrust, what the agency has to do is look at the harm from the conduct, look at the pro-competitive reasons for the conduct, and balance those against each other. Mm. I know that sounds really subjective and kind of vague, and it truly is, and courts struggle with this. And this is part of the reason why sometimes it's difficult for private um, entities or even the government to bring a lawsuit for monopolistic conduct and win, because this is a difficult thing to look at, you know, the harm versus Mm -hmm. the good, what the reason is for that, you know, is there a legitimate business reason for the conduct? You know, when you look back at the Microsoft case in which the government was essentially successful, they won, they didn't break the company up, but they won. In that case, it, it was a much easier situation for the government because the conduct was egregious on its face Mm -hmm. and Microsoft really had no response. They didn't really have a legitimate pro-competitive business reason to do what they did. But Amazon seems that they would. They would. In this case. Yes, I think that they would. And so these things have to be weighed and the FTC has to determine do we have a case or not here. And net net, 
this lowers prices for me. Exactly. So how, so how does that play into the argument? It plays in significantly because, first of all, antitrust is really meant to protect consumers. And if we're getting good prices, consumers are getting good prices, they don't want to do anything that's going to harm that balance. You know, they wouldn't want to do something counterproductive that results in stopping this conduct and, let's say, assisting rivals, but then causing consumer prices to go up or consumer choice mm-hmm. to go down. And that's a very significant issue. And that's the other thing Amazon will say. We are bringing good prices and good products to consumers. And every time we go into a new industry, we increase competition and prices go down. Excellent. Love it. Really, I always learn stuff when I talk to Jen. Thank you so much, Bloomberg <laughs> Senior you. Antitrust Litigation Analyst, Jen Reed. Our next story is BASF totally rocked the world this week when it slashed its profit forecast for 2019. Everyone knew they were going to do that, but it was bad and badder. For <laughs> more or less welcome, Bloomberg Intelligence Global Chemicals Analyst, Jason Miner. He joins us from Shanghai. So, Jason, like I said, we knew it was going to be bad. So just how bad was it? Well, uh, if you look across the uh, the analyst community, I think the first thing that any of us could say was a wow. Um, just a few months ago, the forecast was for earnings to be uh, sort of slightly up, maybe flat. Um, if you look across the peer set, at most uh, folks were expecting on consensus a 2019 earnings drop of maybe 15%, maybe 18%, um, you know, for even the, the, the bigger peers across the, the world. So a 30% potential drop in earnings is not bigger than what you see in a real petrochemical downturn. Uh, but I don't think anybody was on board with the idea that we were into a real petrochemical downturn yet. So, uh, yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, wow, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and what's interesting to me is that BASF is quite diversified in sort of the different businesses that they wind up touching. So can you walk us through, they blame trade. Walk us through all the weaknesses. Yes. Uh, well, trade is the uh, the dog that's eating everyone's homework uh, these days. So, uh, it, and it's very true here. Of course, it's a very global industry. But there were at least six different pieces, and part of the surprise here is that uh, BASF has been pursuing a more diversified strategy. It's not an upstream plastics maker. They've been headed downstream into a lot of different and unrelated industries. But a lot of those things came into a perfect storm here. So um, autos production was one of the hot points. Uh, Production has been down. It was down um, significantly in the second quarter as well. And the outlook is fairly weak there. That's a high value segment. But then when you look at agriculture, which should be uncorrelated, we had a lot of U.S. flooding. And um, that here is taking some blame too. So uh, everything from uh, tariffs to autos to um, you know, U.S. farms uh, all kind of came together in a perfect storm here, and the result is a big decline, not a lot of diversity, which I think people had been building into some of their expectations for BASF in particular. So what part of that, though, is going to be idiosyncratic, and what problems are going to really persist, say, over the next 18 months? It's a great point. You know, uh Planting and farming season happens once a year, so we think we get a reset there um, just based on the cycle of the world. Um, and so that actually uh, could turn up. We had, uh, well, we had a tough farm se- sector this first uh, part of this year. Um, that could lead to higher prices and, and better trends there. The persistent part um, is when you look at the read across from the basic U.S. petrochemicals, that's a place where we've been looking at a growing overcapacity story. China, as I'm sitting here now, is also rapidly expanding in petrochemical capacity. That's meeting up with a slowing global macro- macroeconomic picture. Um, and so the persistent part here, what might kind of continue for 
that two to three year chemical down cycle we often get uh, would be the, um, the ethylene cycle, the polyethylene, the big um, global petrochemical producers, particularly the commodities, and particularly the U.S., which has really been benefiting from this cheap shale gas, um, but now sees a lot of capacity and a slowing macroeconomic picture. Um, those, those bulk commodity petrochemicals are really the persistent risk here. But I thought that the petrochem world was U.S. is long, China's short. That's going to be the the easy bet. We're going to just export petrochems to the rest of the world. We're just going to rock it. Well, like, so is this a normal cyclical commodity down cycle that we're in, or is this something different? Like, when did that thesis change? So one, you're right. That had been happening. Um, this the story has slowly shifted to um, U.S. is just going to outrun everyone else if it all goes into a little oversupply. It's still way ahead in terms of low cost. China started up a bunch of coal-based petrochemicals capacity, partly to thwart that story. They really do want independence. They've been more successful at doing that than anyone expected even two or three years ago. And so um, they're starting to squeeze some of their vast coal resources into petrochemicals. If oil prices stay up, that stuff runs quite well. And those plants have come on, a little tricky to run, but they've come on a lot more effectively. So China is actually going to take the the baton from us here as we ramp down our shale base petrochemical expansion. China's moving into two or three years of even more uh, coal-based chemical expansion, and that's going to compete pretty well. The trade, by the way, is a lot of friction in the story you just told of us shipping to them. So Mm -hmm. there's an adjustment to do, too, in that side. Feels very similar to what's happening in the refining segment over in China as well, just sort of dumping product after product on the market. So, how much of BASF do we need to then take and apply to either other industries or just other chemical companies? Yep, it's uh, it's sort of chain by chain. Uh, uh, for the chemical nerds in the world, I'll point out that polyurethanes was a big part of this. Um, there are other players like Dow, um, Wanhua in China, and Covestro that are in the polyurethane space, and there's a downturn going on there. Um, the big reads across from the other stuff, the basic petrochemicals, um, you know, BASF actually is uh, one of the top three, one of the largest petrochemical companies in the U.S., even though they're thought of as a German company. So the mm-hmm. The petrochemicals piece of that reads across to, again, Lionel Bissell, Dow Chemical, Westlake, even Eastman and Selenese, particularly on the auto side. So there's a lot of read across on the uh, margin squeeze to the big U.S. petrochemical players here. Interesting stuff. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bloomberg Intelligence Global Chemicals Analyst Jason Miner. Thank you. All right, so that's over in Europe and sort of a company we're watching there. Now we're going to wrap up our show with a focus on the banking industry, and we're going to stay there, and we're going to stay in Germany because Deutsche Bank front and center finally unveiling their restructuring plan. For more, we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Financial Analyst, Allison Williams. Allison, there are literally like 75 different ways we could break down the Deutsche Bank restructuring. I think the most relevant is what's the biggest problem? What's the biggest question that the markets still have on this? So the biggest question remains uh, capital, I think. It was uh, great that they put together this plan without having to raise capital. They're going to cut the dividend. They're going to run a smaller uh, capital cushion. But I think there are still questions around, you know, will that be enough? Things aren't going to sort of bottom out until 2020, so it's going to take some time and some patience. And so I think even though they sort of came out with this positive news, questions still linger, especially given the past history. 
Well, and what I found so fascinating were sort of um, when you saw the pictures of people walking out with their boxes, it really echoed. Um, I mean, 18,000 people is quite a lot of people, and it echoed what happened with Lehman Brothers. And you just saw these people walking out of their boxes, uh, you know, over 10 years ago. But we've had a 10-year bull market in the middle of that. So the issues at um, Deutsche Bank, it, it, it's a couple of things. And, and really the core problem for the company over the last several years has been sort of an inability to um, grow the bank profitably. And especially over the last few years, you know, in 2016, there were a lot of legal headlines, a lot of real concerns around capital, uh, a lot of business sort of moved away from them, and they just uh, haven't been able to get some of that back. And at the same time, you've had U.S. competitors um, becoming stronger, investing in technology, sort of making progress on that front. And so I think there's been a lot of share gains by the U.S. companies um, sort of at the expense of Deutsche Bank. Um, and w- what are some of the, the things that they did that are longer lasting? Like obviously cutting 18,000 jobs once you get over sort of the severance. That's a long-lasting cost cut. But then you have things like um, they're going to have the bad bank, which means they have to hold less reserves or uh, like a new rule that I guess took effect a, a couple weeks ago uh, that basically meant that they had to hold less also in their reserves for risky bets. I mean, how much of that's like engineered? So a lot of that, I think, is important to your to your point about sort of the uh, the financials of the company. But I think the bigger question and the bigger decision was um, the announcement that they're exiting global equities. Uh, the question still remains for us um, is how much are they keeping, right? So um, they're exiting prime finance. Um, you know, they they have some agreements that they've put in place, but but they've talked about they're going to keep. At, they want to keep sort of enough of an equities presence to support uh, adjacent businesses. So the question is, you know, how big is that? Mm-hmm. And then is there a potential knock-on effects to those adjacent businesses um, from having the smaller effort, especially when you're competing with other companies? Um, again, everyone's sort of going after some of the same businesses, global transaction businesses. Uh, banking was expected to be a better business. Um, global wealth management was it was just something that banks broadly are targeting, especially in Asia. Deutsche Bank targeting as well. You know, are there going to be knock-on effects? They're assuming you know modest two percent revenue growth a year, but is there risk to that? Well, and I like that you brought that up. So let's go to it. The derivatives. Uh, so uh, who wins? So you close on the equity business, right? Who takes the lunch? And who can then become price competitive with other parts of Deutsche Bank's business that might not be able to hold up if you close the equity business? I think we do continue to see uh, momentum from some of the larger U.S. companies. So if we look at who has gained share over the, over the last um, few years, um, J.P. Morgan has clearly been a big winner in both FIC and equities trading. Um, and especially in equities, if you look at, um, you know, they acquired uh, – Bear Stearns several years ago. It was a U.S.-centric business. Um, they really hadn't penetrated the international markets, but over the last few years, that is really where they have made the progress. And so part of that is obviously um, helped by multi-year investments, but part of that was also likely created um, by some of the competitive opportunities. So they've grown non-U.S., especially in the prime business, cash equities, which was sort of the one business that they weren't top three for a long time. Um, they've now made it into that top three. And again, the growth has been non-U.S., Europe, and mm-hmm. Asia. 
It's like the gift that keeps on giving financial journalists because there will always be news <laughs> to be had from Deutsche Bank. All right, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Allison Williams, a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Financial Analyst. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies, 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence on BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. Have a wonderful weekend. This is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.